0: it's been a while.
1: It has, but I'm glad we took a break, because as soon as we took a break, they, gave, they started winning like crazy. So, that, that was a good thing. Now it's over. We can we don't have to worry about cursing anything.
0: That's right. It's just get out of the way. Let them go. Howdy doesn't have to fix anything, and then we go from there. <laughs> By the way, congrats. Your boy Zanino. Absolutely amazing. Most valuable player on the Tampa Rays, who had the best record in the American League.
1: I, I was saying it for years. I'm so glad that somebody at least can benefit from him. I wish it was the Mariners, but somebody's at least going to benefit from the work that I did, and I appreciate that. I'm thankful.
0: He's flying you to the World Series, isn't he?
1: I mean, it's a a given. I have to be. Yeah, I have to be there.
0: Because if they're going to be in the World Series, they have to. I mean, isn't that an easy one to root for? You have to root for the Rays? Of
1: all the teams in the American League, especially since the Blue Jays didn't make it, yeah, it's the Rays. That's the team that you got to be pulling for. If you're an American League fan not in one of these other cities, you have to be pulling for the Rays.
0: Yeah. And if it's not for Zanino, then for Nelson Cruz, I don't know if you heard, but Saturday night a lot of folks in the Mariners organization got texts from Nelson Cruz saying congratulations and getting to where you're at right now. I'm going to do what I can do tomorrow. Wow.
1: That is so cool. <laughs> I mean, what a guy. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, go Rays at this point, and hopefully next year you're you're going up against those Rays because they're not going anywhere Absolutely.
1: Either. So let's lay it out for what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to do a series of these, which I think is going to be useful. There's a lot that came out of this Mariners season, and obviously there's a ton that's coming down the pike for this team. Mm. So today I'd love for us to talk talk through some of the things that made this season special, and there's no real good way to start a, talking about this than to go through the end of, Walk me through what it was like for you as this team came down the stretch in this last 15 games, and particularly these last two series they had at home.
0: It was absolutely nuts. And I'm going to go ahead and preface this with I didn't think that we would actually see them in the postseason. And I'm sorry, I can't go all rah-rah, and of course they're going to make it. And I explained this on Jake and Stacey about a month ago, because You know, they weren't quite on the roller coaster, but you were seeing missed opportunities with the team to pick up a win here or pick up a win there. And Jake turned to me in the show and he said, how do you deal with this? I mean, just how do you deal, how do you not get mad about this or frustrated about this? You have to do this every day and we are living and dying with this every day. How do you get, you know, how do you stay so even with it? And I told them and the listeners that years ago there was a similar situation. I think it was 16 and, and. You were looking at, they were they're were making a push, but all the numbers were against them. I, mean, I believe the run differential, again, was not good. Um, all of the pundits, in, and it was more pundit at that time than it was actual formulas. It's just like, they're not going to make the postseason. And then you saw some of the actual numbers, and your percentage was get a 6% chance of making the postseason and I would look at that and I'm like yeah what do they know you know I'm here with this team every day and I see what's in front of me and I know their magic and I know what they can do and I know you know they're not taking this into consideration this player or their ability to do this or that they have no idea I'm up close so I can see what it is numbers don't lie and when you're getting into those percentages and the likelihood, it's not just what you're doing, it's what others are doing too. So I'm looking at the numbers while those disappointing games were happening and it's eight percent, it's six percent, it's four percent. And sure they were still, you know, having the dramatic wins and honestly a better team than they were two months ago.
1: Oh, I think dramatically better. And we're we're gonna chronicle some of that throughout this podcast, but I think they made a dramatic turn to make themselves a, a completely different team by the time they ended the season than when they started.
0: Right, but other teams do too at the you know at that point of the year. So it was like we were seeing better baseball, but it, it just you know I I just told them just watch the numbers and you won't be disappointed. And sure enough, the numbers that said that basically they would come right up against it, they came right up against it. It's really a tough thing to overcome that likelihood that this is going to happen. At least that's what I believe after the couple of experiences I've had. So I was not in knots about what was happening at the time when Jake asked me that. And and to take that one step further, I really, and I, I don't, I'm not the big, I understand the numbers. I am into the numbers. I think I was actually into the numbers before a lot of folks were um, because it was another way to understand this game. But I'm not a numbers whiz, genius, or anything. It takes me a little while to get through these. But, and, and I put nothing into this, but about, A week and a half ago, I came to the realization because we were thinking, oh, they're just running out of time. They're so close. They're so close. I wouldn't be surprised that if they played another two weeks, the results would be the same. Hmm. I think this is who they are. This is who everybody else was. And who they were were just not quite there. Sure, there might have been a little luck or something crazy could have happened, but I think that even if you had added time, this is what the teams were at the time, and this is probably – what would have happened anyway. So it wasn't a matter of one or two games.
1: It was really interesting to watch the rest of the American League wildcard race come down because you saw between the four teams that were in it, the Blue Jays, the Yankees, the Mariners, and the Red Sox, three of those teams are carried by enormous talent. Mm -hmm. Enormous talent. And for some of those teams, on both sides of the ball. And the Mariners, they, they did it differently than all of those other teams. They did all season long, they did differently than those teams. And when it came down to it towards the end between the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Blue Jays to some extent too with the charge that they made at the end, that talent just overwhelmed a lot of their opponents. It was pretty impressive to watch. And the Mariners, they overwhelmed their opponents in a different way. But when the chips were on the table and they had to face the Red Sox in that moment, when it became talent versus their grit-style determination, man, it's, it was tough. It was hard. It, it was a hard series that way. I, I think that that was a little bit microcosmic of how they sat with the rest of the teams in contention. No,
0: but you say that, and last night, the supremely talented bats, the fearsome lineup of the Yankees was not enough against the Red Sox in Fenway Park, which I think that obviously had a lot to do with it. And, and my point there would be, as far as the American League wildcard race went, they were also streaky. And I think the Mariners were probably the most consistent team. They certainly had the best record since May 24th. They had the better record of all of the teams at that point. So as far as the talent goes, there's no denying it was there. But I think the consistency was was completely different. New York just was absolutely, you had no idea what they were going to do the last month. They might reel off 13 wins. They could then lose seven in a row. And Boston, you didn't quite know what they were either. So I'm not sure that... I don't know that they were out talented. I just I they all I think were where they were at. I think the Mariners were the most consistent. Um and if somebody got hot of one of those teams that did have that talent, that was what was going to do it. But yeah, it was it was a fantastic race. We're all disappointed we didn't see the four way or the three way. And I was trying to deal with at the time. Where are we going? How do we get there? I normally travel with the team because of COVID. That wasn't going to happen in the postseason. That might not happen either because they put so many other people on the plane. So I was kind of put into the party that would not be with the team, which meant that they sent us three tickets. We could have been going to Boston, New York, or Toronto. And so we're hanging on everything, just trying to figure out where we're going. And they are all red-eye flights. And they are all, you get into the city, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and it's a 4 o'clock Eastern game, which means you need to be at the park at noon. So it was going to be crazy. That's oh, by crazy. by the way, if you win, you're in New York the next day <laughs> for another you know game at about the same time. Wow. So along those lines, and I'd always told myself, because we've had a lot of years to prepare for this, that if we ever did get to the end and if there was ever a postseason – I literally, like one of the players, am going to need to work out in the off season for it. I am going to need to be a hundred percent healthy. I mean, I started hydrating like mad, and I wasn't joking. I was telling you, know what do you do? I was like, hydrate. <laughs> People were saying that, like drink water. <laughs> yeah. yeah. First and foremost, but you have got to have enough left in the tank, even as a reporter with that travel schedule that I just gave you. Mm. And by the way, you got to be sharp when you go. You can't just land and sleepwalk through it. So, I mean, that's a consideration that I'd always made, and it's a consideration that I'm going to actually put into action a little bit more this offseason in that a major league season is a grind. The last two months for me, traditionally, everything goes out the window. I've told the story a million times. My fridge broke about 10 years ago in August, and I just emptied it and unplugged it and said, I will deal with this (laughs) in October because I'm not even eating at home anymore because that's how a baseball season goes. So, you know, that has to, you have to take that into consideration. But the team themselves, I was so impressed on how, for the most part, they kept it all on an even keel. I do think we saw them, I don't want to say freeze, but I think the emotion of the full crowds got to them in that first game last weekend. I do think none of them had ever seen anything like that. When Jared Kelnick hit the double and afterwards told everybody to come to the ballpark and he said, I've never had an experience like this. And that was 17,000. I'm like, oh, kid, you have no idea what's coming this weekend. Yeah. And And
1: they asked for it. I I was there for that game. I was there for Friday. I was there for Saturday. I mean, heading into that game Friday, I was completely of that same mind. If there's going to be a game that I thought they were going to lose that series, it was the first one against the Angels because they had built that game up to be something so big and make it a huge moment, hoping that that was going to push them over the edge, like this extra boost of, of energy and everything. What I watched in that game was a team that played completely differently than they had for the last three weeks.
0: Right, and I think some of it came out of nowhere, but you don't know until you're put into that situation. You don't know what the adrenaline is going to do. You don't know what your brain is going to do. You don't know what you might not be able to hear. You know, you think of all the times we've seen misplays in the outfield. We didn't in this series, but you think about that. My God, if a ball had been hit up in the air to you know center and left in, in for forty four thousand, they'd have no shot at hearing that. But all of these things, they know. You know that is part of the experience that they got this year. It doesn't only just make them hungrier for next year, and we're going to work harder and and be more determined and whatnot. That is practical experience that you've got to have because you do not know. You can tell yourself as much as you want. And I've been in situations like this and. I'm calm, I'm prepared, I know what's going to happen. And when you have that outside push, there's nothing you can do. If that adrenaline starts rushing, it is very hard to stop it. And it might take an inning or two or three, and that could be the difference in that kind of game.
1: Can you talk us through a little bit about what you saw from this team being around, talking with the people in the organization as they were coming home for that final homestand? What was the atmosphere like? What was the attitude like? How was the mentality what, what 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 was it compared to how it had been for the past month or so?
0: Well, as far as, like, front office members, as far as, you know, Jerry Depoto and staff, if you ran into anybody from baseball ops, they were thrilled. They were absolutely thrilled, and they were scoreboard-watching everything. You know, that was a neat thing to see. It was a neat thing to, you know, oh, they're just not, just on the analytical side, they were like fans when you ran into them, which was really cool, and that's one of the reasons why – I try and maintain as much as I can just kind of that, you know, you're impartial, you're the reporter. Although I am also the pre- and the post-host, so there there is a little bit of that. But I want this team to do well and to make the postseason for the people, for the people on the field, for the people who work so hard in the, the baseball ops, in the front office, and uh, everybody that's put in the hours and, and the blood and the sweat and the tears. And just the emotions, because everybody in that building hangs on every win and loss, not just this year, but every year. And every time that they have failed, it has been devastating for people out of there. But also for the people here in the community in the city of Seattle, it's, it's when baseball does good, good things happen for communities, too. And we felt that this weekend. And so, you know, to see that, I was just thrilled for everybody who was involved because I see up front, you know, everything that's involved in it. Uh, As Scott Service, you know, it was his job to keep everything on the even keel, which is what he's done all year long. And I think that his, you know, just the hallmark of what he did this year was no panic. Everything is, you know, falling apart. We're on the first two months of the season. We're on an unbelievable roller coaster. And this was a season there weren't big expectations as far as making the postseason, but there were big expectations and pressure in that we need answers. We need this player to succeed. We need to be somewhere at the end of this year. So there was definitely a pressure there. And then you lost half the team to injuries. You had the COVID outbreak, everything else. But he was absolutely even keeled. And, you know, when he started saying that, you know, it's this is um, go time or this is, you know, gut check time or this is when we have to get it done at different points. It was completely different. You know, and this was the first time that he was really doing that. Mike Blowers on his broadcast was Absolutely fantastic. If you had the chance to listen to him at all, he was calling everything, you know, how he's Blostradamus. Not ahead of time, but it was, this needs to happen here. They need to push this run across, or this pitcher has to do this. And it was, it was so intense. It was the same way in the postgame. His, I just got out of the way on the postgame show when he was on and just talk. You know, just let him go. Just let him go because he'd been there before. And he was laughing about the whole thing the whole time because he knew the emotions. He went through it. He was on that 95 team. He knows what this is like. And heading into the weekend series, he said, this is going to go down to Sunday. You know Why? Because that's what they do. They have been, you know, Sunday will be the bottom of the ninth inning, down one. That's what they do all season long. Usually they come back. It, as it turned out, it didn't matter because Boston and New York won. But of course this was going to go down to the last day. Of course it was. You
1: know, I'm glad you brought up Blowers. That stood out to me too. Listening to those game broadcasts, he, uh, his experience did shine through, you know. I imagine it's got to be really hard for an analyst of a team in any sport, but especially baseball, when you have these repeated opportunities over and over and over again, 162 times a year, and then year after year after year to never really get towards the end of the season, say for two or three you know, anomalous seasons, that you can't talk about the excitement and the bigness of the moments because the bigness of the moment isn't there when you're not competing. And to to get to that point with this team, where for two weeks at the end of the season, Every moment did matter. Every game had the highest stakes. And yet the team had shown up to that point, specifically over the last two months of the season, that they belonged there. That this competing thing wasn't a, I hope this works out. This this team can do it if they execute all of these moments. And it was really cool to hear Blowers talking about those different things. As the games went on, as the games finished, as a loss comes through, talking about how the next game needs to look and the things that they need to do to prepare for that game specifically, that's the kind of stuff we has not been able to talk about for years. And It shined through to me. It, it was energizing. It was exciting. It added another level of baseball fandom to me that I had missed since they'd been competing in the early 2000s.
0: It was really something to feel the intensity. And A couple of weeks out when we started scoreboard watching, I'm like, I'm going to lose my mind the next two months. We're not in <laughs> practice of this. I'm like, this is September baseball. Stacy Ross's tweet was just the absolute best. Was it uh, the Monday that they were off on a, yeah, a Monday last week. And she tweeted out, I'm just a girl watching a Baltimore Orioles game. <laughs> 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 and that's what it was. And I'm like, yeah, we're all watching the Baltimore Orioles right now. What What world are we living in? That's what you do in September. And it was thrilling to watch the Baltimore Orioles game on the off day. Gary Hill, which I was really concerned about him. He watches every – I mean, he has the MLB – and I do too, but I kind of – I more go with the sound rather than watching or I turn off the sound and just watch it on one or the other. He, every day for, I think, almost at least three weeks, had all of the relevant games up on his screen on the app and was scoreboard watching like you wouldn't believe and living and dying with every single game. It wasn't one game. It would be four games. <laughs> And it was amazing. It was funny because it's like he would come in and I think it was about a week out. He's like, are we really going to do this? <laughs> and I'm like, it could happen. It could happen. You know, despite what I said on Jake and Stacy and the numbers, when you get into that last week, anything goes. There's no question about that. And things did seem to be lining up, you know, the right way. And then the players themselves. It was just so fun to see, you know, J.P. Crawford and the emotion. Jared Kelnick come through in a big situation. Yeah,
1: we've been waiting for that for so long.
0: So is he. I mean, that's, (laughs) you know, that guy that you saw at second base doing the big, you know, the, the fist pump and everything else. That's him, and that's who he wants to be. And the guy who grabbed the microphone and, and, you know, put out the videos afterwards thanking everybody, he wants everybody involved in this. And I got that from him in spring training because I think we were coming off a season where we were just seeing the brash kid who said funny things and outrageous things. And, you know, he dearly wants to win for himself, for his teammates, and for the city.
1: I'm excited for him to take that next step forward next year in that element because, I got the sense watching him as so many big moments that he got that he wanted it so bad in those big moments. It was almost a liability how badly mm-hmm. he wanted to perform in those big moments. And if that's if that's one thing that he can step forward to just perform at his normal level in those big moments, you're going to come through 30, 40, 50% of the time. Like he's that's going to be That's going to be a huge thing for him. You want to talk about his confidence and a way to make him step forward and believe and not have some of those huge lulls? Have him deliver in a couple of those moments and see what happens. I think that the confidence and the belief in himself and his stuff and the lack of the less thinking that he'll do when he does come through in those moments I think will shine through across the board in every every statistical category for him
0: and that's so key that he got some of that learning that's going to be a work in progress but when you were looking at what he was coming in because he came up on the day that he came up and i'm jared kelnick arriving in the big leagues i'm here to save everybody i'm going to be superman out here because that's all i've ever been i'm going to launch my clothing company today never seen that one before and uh, he got batted down. And, you know, just as I said with the adrenaline, you don't know until you've been in that situation it hits you. He didn't know until he got into MLB that it was a little bit different.
1: That there are 13 ways that every pitcher can beat you. <laughs> and you got to be able to eliminate a bunch of those so that you at least know what to look for.
0: And, oh, by the way, they were ready for him and going after him. I have not seen a young player targeted the way that he was as far as manager making that pitching change right away. If that game was, you know, regardless, he could have been hitting o seven one, and they were still going after the lefty. You know, just the nasty lefty in the bullpen for him. And so, you know, I think he learned so much. But I think, you know, the baseball is there. I think yeah, the outfield obviously has to be cleaned up a little bit. But I think the bigger concern was, well, how is he going to handle this mentally? And we we saw, you know, a lot of broken bats early on. That's not okay. We saw a lot of, uh, you know, things that would get the umpires ire. That's not okay. But we saw steps taken. We saw progress made with that. I think there's still a little way to go with that. But I remember, I can't remember what game it was, but he was in another situation where he was up late in a game and could have done something. And he had, a, I was down on the field because... That was another part that was great. We have to do the walk-off interviews if they win. I spent so much... I was down on the field almost every game, every home game, because you didn't know which way it was going to... You know, if they're up three, or if they're down three, they still could score three in the ninth inning. So I've got to be down there in case that happens. And it was one of those situations, and he was in a situation where he could do something, and he had a tremendous at-bat, and he actually ended up striking out on a really nasty pitch. And... Watching him through that at bat was very different. He's left-handed, and I'm on the third base side, so I could see him. His face could not have been more calm. His breathing could not have been more calm. He you know, stepped out for a couple of times, not too much, but you could tell he was in control of that at bat. You could tell he was locking in. He didn't get the result, and when it was done, he said one thing to the umpire, I think asking about the location of the pitch and then turned around and walked in to the dugout. There was no, you know, f bombs there was no throwing anything there was no going down in the tunnel to do some damage where it can't be heard but it can be because we've got field mics it was you know just kind of a nod of the head and yep and i'm like okay we're on we're there we're there he can handle these right now doesn't mean he's always going to come through but to see that calm and again i saw that a little bit in the weekend too uh blowers noticed it too we talked about it on the post game show after that day huge huge step for him
1: absolutely so major progress there an exciting final week of the season what was it like as they, they came through that final day? We'll talk about Kyle Seeger's final day as well. Um, but what was it like coming off the field and, and getting the vibe from where things went from the moment the season ended to today? What's your, what's your, what's your take or your, your perspective been on the players, the team, everything that came with finishing the season?
0: I think they really showed themselves. If you didn't know that J.P. Crawford was an emotional leader, you found out that J.P. Crawford is an emotional leader. And uh, he's there's a little bit of a changing of the guard, you know. Uh, Mitch Haniger will still be a leader. Um, Kyle Seeger will be gone, but J.P. Crawford is going to somebody. It was either I think it was Jerry Depoto actually said J.P. Crawford is the heart and the soul of this team. And if if you didn't see it right there, there it was. Um, Kyle Seeger, that was so emotional. It was tough to watch. I remember when he first got called up and. Just I've always said he was the rookiest rookie when he got called up. If he needed to go left, he went right. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, my favorite story is in his home debut. It might have been a second home game. I'm downstairs going down to the clubhouse, get out of the elevator and the fans, the Diamond Club fans are starting to come through as well at that point Uh, in the lobby right outside of the Diamond Club. That's the same tunnel that goes through to the two clubhouses, but they've got, you know, guards and whatnot. You can't go down either side. Get out of the elevator, and there's Kyle Seeger in full uniform with tickets in hand. Like, what are you doing here, Kyle?
1: That's crazy. (laughs) You can't be
0: here. (laughs) He's like, oh, I'm looking for my family.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He's going to go hand the tickets to his family. In
0: uniform, down in a public area, an hour before a game. And I'm like, let's go find the traveling secretary, shall we? (laughs) Come on. (laughs) You know, it was really funny to see those things. And, and so to see him, um, you know, and at that point he and Julie were engaged. They weren't married yet. Um, and, and to see him raise three kids here and see Crew throw out the first pitch. And to see Kyle over the last couple of years take a leadership role. That's not something that he wanted to do. He wanted to be the behind-the-scenes guy. He wanted to be the lead by example. Not, But he really stepped up. And I'll never forget when they got Robinson Cano. And you were starting to think that maybe Seeger's going to step into that. And then they got Cano, and Cano was a player that Seeger idolized when he came over to the Mariners. Now they were in the same clubhouse. And there were Sundays where Cano would sometimes hold a little bit of court, and you would walk into the clubhouse, and Cano would be in his chair at his locker, and Kyle would be sitting on the floor looking up at him and listening to what he had to say. You know, this isn't a 22, 23-year-old Kyle. This is like a 27, 28-year-old Kyle, but he still wanted to learn from this guy. And, and so, it just uh, to watch him just grow, and watch his family grow, and watch him grow in his role with the Mariners to hit huge milestones this year, uh, it, it was really wonderful to see. And and I understand their pain in losing him. And you don't get that amount of emotion. Machaniger is like darn near every player with tears in their eyes afterward, or crying—not tears in their eyes, literally crying. You don't see that. You know how special this. is. Tell me about is.
1: that. Talk me through that because I had the same thought. As I was watching that unfold, and they pulled him out of the game, he's he's crying. The rest, of the, I'm so many guys, true tears falling down their face. I can't remember watching a player who hasn't who isn't retiring or moving on with that kind of a response from from his entire. team. I, c- I can't remember seeing it in any team, really in any sport. I can't remember ever seeing it.
0: Right. Well it tells you what he's been doing in the last couple of years for that clubhouse and we haven't been able to see it up front because we haven't been in there, but Kyle's not going to tell you either. It's all very behind the scenes. And I think that what was really kind of neat about it is Kyle was raised by some old school people, Jack Wilson, Willie Bloomquist of all people, but that's a good baseball foundation, you know, as far as how things are done. Um and and he passed on a lot of that to the players. Around him, and he was—he wasn't rookies' need to be seen but not heard. But rookies were afraid to approach him because Kyle had, you know, for all the aw shucks and the simply Seeger, he's got a sharp wit and tongue, and 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 you know, just a little bit of biting irony that you will see from him from time from often. <laughs> he's <laughs> that guy. He is that guy. He gets on everybody. Um, So they'd be a little bit um, nervous to, you know, kind of be around him, but they would want to be because he was still a name in baseball. He still knew things and they would want to know. I remember Evan White telling me in spring training this year that he was that guy and then he realized I can give it back to him now. And that was, you know, that made him feel like, okay, now I I can handle him a little bit more. I can hang out with him. I can be over his shoulder during a game and asking him questions. And once you kind of broke down that, and it's not even a barrier. I just think it is like, um, yeah, you know, I'm not gonna tiptoe around you, rookie. Come on, and don't ask me if you don't want the real answer because you're gonna get it. So there has always been that appreciation. But I think it just shows you all the things that you don't hear and you don't see and that showed you everything that was going on. At that time, with those players in the clubhouse and things that you don't know. Remember when um, J.P. Crawford came out and, and said, um, you know, my mentality up there is I'm going to rake your face." Yeah. To the pitcher, I asked him, "Where'd you get that, Kyle Seager?" That does not sound like Kyle Seager, does hmm, it? No. That's Kyle Seager behind the scenes. That's the Kyle Seager that that's what he's telling those players. That's the aggression that he wants them to have. You know, be on the attack against that pitcher. And, and so I think that, you know, Kyle chose to keep everything on the down low and not show that to everybody else, but everybody in that clubhouse got all of that.
1: I think this is fantastic. I want to take a detour with Kyle Seeker in this because there are two ways I want to go here. I want, I want to go in the direction of how does that clubhouse turn now with him gone and JP basically they, almost officially the baton passed to him in that post-game interview that he had with Angie Bentick. It, almost official. So I want to go there. But before we go there, I would like a little bit more perspective from you um, because I think this is really interesting stuff talking about who Kyle Seeger is, who he was to this team, who he'd become on that team, but some of his trajectory and how he got to where he is now. Um, You know, we don't have to necessarily get into how come this is splitting the way it is. I think there's a lot of stuff that probably isn't going to come out about that. But how how did we get to from where he was, defining you know his defining moments and the defining things that have developed over his career to get to where he is now, where the team, you know, is reacting to him in a way, him leaving in a way that I've never seen before.
0: You know what I think one of the th- a big thing is respect in that this was not a blue chip prospect. You know he was the other guy. He was the guy when Dustin Ackley was out in the field and all the scouts were watching him. He caught their eye and then i i think that you know he had to work his way up work his way through his and,
1: play has always spoken for him more than his projections have
0: yeah yeah absolutely and uh, and then was a guy that uh, you know he was a shortstop and then he was a second baseman and then he was a third baseman and he had to adapt to all of the moves and you know the biggest adapting came when he was moved from second to third and his first thought was i've got to get bigger I can't just go play third. I've got to hit for power because that's, you know, how baseball traditionally is. Your power numbers are coming from your corner. He did that on his own. That was his immediate thought. And all, okay, I guess I'm going to be Kyle Seager power hitter now or adding power. And you you didn't see that coming. And, Uh, So he did that, and I I think that people that had followed him through the years, he adapted his game. He was uh, a real student of hitting, and we heard the stories. He was a tinkerer, and there was, you know, sometimes to his detriment and probably too much video at times and whatnot, but that makes him an absolute font of information for everybody in that clubhouse. That's why you always see the rookies fighting to be near him, you know, because he can help them on that. He does one thing one way. They're going to do it different, but his observations are going to be key, and there's a ton that has been put into it. And he's going to see things that others don't see. Uh, I I think that raised him as well. Uh, We saw a big change when he turned 30, and he made the commitment, realizing that, you know, my body is going to change. I'm not going to be able to do things that I need, and I'm not able to do things right now that I want to because he was in kind of a strange shape. You know, he had the extreme diet in the off season to get into better shape, the extreme workout, changed workouts, you know, reformed his body, uh, which helped. And then the approach changed as well. And I think that this year we saw him. I don't want to say he was all out selling out for power, but power was definitely a priority with him this year. And he sees himself when he was reaching the 100 RBI Milestone because he's somebody that would usually know this doesn't matter, this doesn't, this doesn't. That did because he said he saw himself, you know, I'm batting cleanup. I'm in a position where it's my job to drive and run. So, yes, 100 means something to me. Um, All of those are very different things and, and kind of different stages of his baseball life, and everybody sees that and respects the work that he put in, and I think that's a big part of it. Nothing was ever handed to him.
1: Tell me about how he became Cap. Because that, to me, it's more, than a, it's more than a nickname. Because that's not what Kyle Seeger was thought of. And you mentioned and alluded to it that there might have been some thoughts within the Mariners that we'd like him to become that. We'd like him to become the guy that sort of this whole thing revolve, revolves around. I think around that Cano, Cruz, Segura time that they hoped, mm-hmm. that's my impression from the outside, they hoped that he was going to be the guy that led this thing and steered it through. And I don't know that that really happened, but I'm not really inside of all that. How did we get to, from Kyle Seeger, the unheralded prospect who just kept producing and doing his own thing and churning through his own thing, to the Cano uh, era, where you had a a, a whole new core basically inserted into the core that was already there, Mm -hmm. then to Cap Seeger. How did we get to that spot
0: he never wants to be the guy out front but at the same time he will be the first one that does somebody need to go talk I will go talk Um, and I think that when Cano and Cruz got there that was a reprieve of sorts for him he didn't have to be the leader he didn't have to be the guy we got Cano and Cruz why would I be you know I'm not the guy they're the guy and I think that that was probably a little bit convenient for him to be honest with you Uh, and then when they were gone and they were rebuilding and he was not pleased about it You know, his clock is ticking. He wants to get to the postseason. Things aren't looking good for the vet when you tear everything down. There's no question about that. Add to that the fact that his younger brother had done it not once but multiple times. That hurt. Not as a rivalry thing, but he wanted that. He had heard. And his younger brother
1: was was the one that everyone pointed to and said, this is going to happen for him. It's going to happen for him. Right. And then it did, right? This is just another moment in his career mm-hmm. where somebody else is getting the accolades, the praise, and everything. And yeah, it's yeah, not but him. that's
0: not it. That's not the painful part. The painful yeah. part is, is he got every intimate detail of what it feels like mm. to be in the World Series. That's mm. his ultimate goal. And he you know, didn't just read about it or hear a quick story about it. He could ask his brother about everything about it and, and all but be there. In fact, I don't even think I, I don't think he went to any of those games. I don't think, hmm. which to me, probably couldn't. Maybe it was too much. I don't know. I know early on he went to a playoff game that Corey was in, but I don't know that he went in the later ones. But he, you know, everything that he wanted, th- he he found out he wanted even more when he heard the actual feelings and the firsthand accounts of it from somebody. You know, he obviously. Uh, was close to and cared about so much. So that's what he was dealing with. And then, you know, they come to him, hey, God, we'd like a little bit more. We've got all these young guys coming in. So not only are you taking a step back because of the young guys, all of a sudden you got to manage all the puppies too. But you know what? He he stepped up. And I I want to give him credit. I, I like to think that it would have happened regardless because who's, that's who he is. But I, I think there was conscious effort that was put into it as well. And he becomes cap because, you know, they see everything that I've just talked about and more. And they recognize that. And that's this. And also, I want to point this out because I think that this is relevant to everything that we saw this year. This group is very different in how they have come together because of what they have been through in the last two years. This group and groups all, you know, clubhouses all around baseball right now are more insular because they don't have anybody coming in they don't have to deal with the media every day. You don't have to answer to anything right now. And I'm not a big fan of, oh, you have to be held accountable. I am not that at all, but it's nice when they are. But we saw an example of it when Joe Smith uh, did a press con- or did a post-game Zoom after a game. Uh, he only gave up one of the runs, but he did not set up his next. I think Steckenrider was the one who gave it up. And he's like, no, no, if he's doing one, I'm doing one, and I'm doing it first. We're not laying it all out on one. In this era of Zoom, it's really easy. Like, now, the hitters aren't talking tonight. Nobody really wanted to talk. Well, we want to find out why they only got two hits. What were they seeing? Yeah. That's stuff that we're missing right now or just key moments with a reliever. You know, we can't, unless it's the guy who saved the game or something like we're not getting any of that right now. So there's, it's all kind of wagons have been circled because of circumstances, and the environment has changed, and I think that that has helped bring this team closer. I think there are detriments to it, but I think it also made it that much closer. I think what they went through last year, let's not forget that baseball was the first sport to try and play through COVID without a bubble. Mm. Nobody knew what was going to happen. People were scared. You didn't know. You walk into a clubhouse with 35 other people, this is before vaccines, and you don't know. And they went through all of that together. You went through you know, the social justice Issues that they went through and had very hard conversations, and you know, came out on the same page and refused to play a game in San Diego. These are all things that are in their DNA, and I think pulled them all together closer starting last year. And this year, again, situation better easy. You know, we feel better about managing this game within COVID, so I think that was less of a problem. But you've got a group that I think it just drew them that much more tighter. And so I think that, you know, they relied more on the people in that clubhouse because they didn't have as much access to people outside and I think that's part of why you saw a lot of the emotion that you saw and why Seeger was more cap rather than just Seeger. He was the guy.
1: That's fantastic. Uh, let's roll this forward to where they're going to go now um with with this leadership structure they got in place. So I'll lay out some parameters for you. You've got Uh, Marco Gonzalez, who I think is probably the guy in the starting rotation that everybody points to. You've got J.P. Crawford, who everyone throughout the season, as the season's progressed, and I don't want to say that this was just a this-year thing because I think this has been developing for a while. If you read enough in between what people have been saying, he's been identified as somebody who is growing to be a leader for two years now, and it was really during this season, from what I can see and what I've heard and read, that he really blossomed and took it and ran with it. And I'm, I'm excited about that because I think that he has some, the whole package of what you're looking for, aside from maybe superstar offensive numbers, everything else is exactly what you want a baseball team to be like. But I'll let you speak to that. So you've got him, and then you've got Mitch Hanniger, who everybody has pointed to throughout the season. You wanna, everyone wants to ask the players about these prospects, these young guys, and the first answer everybody gives, yeah, but Mitch Hanniger and Kyle Seager, I mean, those guys, those are the guys. like Everybody points to that. It's somewhat a talking point, but it's true, and it keeps coming back to that. And Mitch Haniger comes through in this final series to perform in a way that is true superstar, carry the team, stand in the face of adversity and spin in it, and just, just ride. And so you've got that dynamic as well in his final year of his contract approaching. Talk to me about where the clubhouse and leadership and direction goes with those major players at the helm.
0: It's interesting because you've got two different—they are on opposite sides of the spectrum where you've got Mitch, who is very regimented, very analytical, um, doesn't show as much emotion, but when he does, then you really know.
1: And it's always intense emotion when he shows it. It's
0: amazing. (laughs) It's such a reward when you see that. And I wonder how this will impact him going forward, you know, working with Kyle Seeger and seeing what he saw for Seeger and— It'll be very interesting. Mitch obviously is and can be a leader, but he's been the more non-vocal. But it's funny because I I get so angry about this. Uh, Ryan Divish always called him the robot. And I I don't think it was totally derogatory. I just think that it is, you know, he is so regimented, as I said, in everything that he does. And there would be sometimes, you know, his interviews could be vanilla. I, for the most part, think there are no bad interviewees. It's bad interviewers. It's your job. There are some guys that you can't. (laughs) <laughs> I have been stymied a couple of times but there's some that you really have to work to get the good stuff from and when you get Mitch going you hear the passion in his voice and it speeds up his the pace just quickens and he gets louder and he just goes and goes and goes, eyes get bigger. Yeah, I've had a
1: couple of off record conversations with him where it's just, you can see when he gets fired up about something, there is a different tone to his voice. You're absolutely right.
0: Yeah. Nothing robotic there. You got to get to it, but there is a lot of passion, a lot of belief and uh, just, you know, he's an amazing human being and what he has turned himself into. And I've said this before, if you miss a year, if you're an offensive player and you miss a year, I am on the phone to Mitch Haniger. What did you do? Tell me everything. I mean, he it, just remarkable what he did. Uh, I'll be interested to see if his leadership changes at all because of everything that he has seen this year and where he takes that. Crawford is the other way, and, you know, he is the emotional one. But he's also, uh, you know, very regimented, very team. I talked to him early on in the week. Uh, at, I want to say Tuesday, Wednesday. And I, I interviewed him for the pregame show. And I did kind of hit on that he was a leader on this club. And he told me, I'm ready for it. He said, I have been a leader on every club at every level that I have ever been on. And, you know, I, I am ready for it right now. This is my club. And I loved it when he said that. A lot of people don't take ownership. They're, well, I'll be responsible for my performance. This is my club, he said, and I was just smiling because that's what you want. I had heard from others that he is vocal in the clubhouse, that he will get on guys when they need to be got on. Uh, I had found out that he has a pregame ritual that he does with the entire club before. You always wonder, what do they do when they leave the field for that hour between, you know, when they then go out? on the field, and I actually asked him that just kind of offhandedly in that interview. He's like, well, I have a space that I go, I have a room, and I just go and I chill. And that sounds about right. But then I later found out when he's done chilling, he comes out, and he gets the clubhouse going. And it's loud, and there are no coaches in there, no manager in there, but you can hear that he is getting this group fired up to go out there. Two totally different leaders right there. Uh, I think they're in good hands with both of them. And Hanegar, I don't know how it all fits. And you look at him and next year will be his age thirty one season. And MLB is really, really for position players, trending down in age. You're peaking younger, you're you're out earlier. I think he is has got Nelson Cruz qualities. Not that he's gonna go on a home run streak that Nelson Cruz has been on for the last six, seven years. <laughs> After this year, now I'm wondering. But I think in the sense that Nelson has done everything to prepare himself and, and to keep in shape and to advance his body to be able to play to 40. I think Mitch has the possibility of doing something similar. And, again, I don't know how he fits, but he'd be a hard one to let go of.
1: I completely agree. Absolutely and agree. And I have not been here all along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is No, we'll we'll have a lot of conversations about Mitch Handiger, I think, over the next four months. Uh, because you and I have had years of conversations about what the Mariners are going to do with Mitch Haniger, and they were both in pretty clear and maybe in a little bit different spots. But until this season, and really until the last two weeks of this season, I have yet to make my mind up of what I wanted them to do with the team. But as much as I had wanted them to sign him to an extension, that was option number one for me at all points and times. That now is... Escalated to beyond the priority. Some some of it's going to be out of their control, but right. yeah, we'll get to that as we talk over yeah. the next four months. It's but not easy. I do want to touch a little bit more on JP Crawford because I think some of the things that you're mentioning are really interesting, and it sort of takes me back through Mariner history. There've been a lot of leaders with the Mariners ball club. Some of them have had multiple leaders in different directions. They're pulling at the same time. Some of them have switched on a dime in terms of the direction and sort of the attitude of the leadership when. Players come in and players go out. It happens in sports. How would you say J.P. Crawford's mentality and his style, all of of J.P. Crawford is a leader. Who does that remind you of?
0: Oh, I'd have to think about that for a long time. I have
1: a real tough time thinking about who it is because I think there are attributes of a lot of different leaders that he brings into play. But I think one of the unique things about him is that he's more than – a positive energy smile guy. You know, there are a lot of those like cut loose, play-free, whatever dudes that if your team can take take that sort of mentality, you play loose and you have fun and you go on huge streaks and you put up huge games. That's not Mitch that's not him. That's not JP Crawford. But like you said, he's also not Mitch Haniger. He's not grind it all the time, intensity, every moment of it. Yet that is a part of his game. He's an intense dude. He's a focused guy. Right. He's a locked-in guy. Right. So we're not talking about any of these extremes. To me, it feels like if he, if he had the offensive uh, sort of total package that many of these star players in the infield have around baseball, you'd be looking at him as perhaps the perfect leader to a baseball team. And not to say that you have to have the offensive profile in order to be that guy, but I'm saying that that's, that's how close he is to being the kind of guy you would create if you were creating a player and it would be the show. I'm going to create a leader. It's J.P. Crawford. Tell me a little bit more. Is there some way that you can sort of connect him to to anyone else you've seen?
0: I I don't think so because... And they call him the unicorn, which I think is why we're having a problem with this. And when I first heard that, I'm like, no, Shohei Otani's the unicorn. He hits and he pitches. J.P. Crawford just plays shortstop. And and it, it hit me and is, is amplified by what you're saying. No, he is the unicorn because you can't point to just one thing. You're right. He's not just an emotional guy out there. He, his intensity is up there with Hanegers, but he also is incredibly emotional. There is also a a love of the game that is...
1: The Tatis, Acuna, love of the game style stuff that you see in him.
0: Yes, but there is, and there is also a um, you know a fearlessness that he plays without there, and also in that I'm not afraid to you know try and make a play here. I'm not afraid uh, to do something maybe unconventional in this at bat to yes, try and move sort of, the line along yeah, or that try. Derek Jeter,
1: I'm going to do whatever it takes. But in he's this not moment. Derek Jeter. He's right. sure
0: you know. And and then the other thing that I'm not sure people know is his baseball IQ off the charts. I mean, he is up there with anybody. And and he sees the plays before they happen. And he, you know, took over that infield very early on. And it was something that Scott Service pointed to right away. And I'm like, you know, when he came over, and to me I'm thinking, oh, Scott Service is just trying to pump up this guy. He's trying to sell this guy to us. No, they saw the leadership right away, and he was absolutely correct about that. I don't think, and you mentioned the offense, and here's the thing. I would take a September if he can do – six months of September. He is that guy.
1: He talked a lot this this end of the season about how he really took a hard look at himself and said, I'm going to stop living in the dream world. I'm going to stop living in projection world. And I'm going to live in who I am. Mm-hmm. And Who I am is a contact hitter who does the right thing at the plate. That's who I am. And if he can take that to a next level, that's not adding 10 home runs. That's not... That's not changing your approach to say, well, I'm going to hit more this direction so I can get more drive on the ball. No. If I can just make more contact, if I can get on base more often, right. that's, you're talking about a, a true average offense plus plus defense guy. And right now, this season, he was an average guy. But he's above, above average, average if he can that's do all that
0: average. Stuff. That's above average offense. Offense isn't what it was two years ago. And uh, his here's the thing with what you're saying though and what I'm so intrigued about JP Crawford when he came to the Mariners was this close to being a failed prospect
1: yeah he was he was and the biggest one of the biggest question marks is can he be consistent enough to play shortstop every day he he and can had all we the talent things he yeah. wasn't
0: a gold glove shortstop by any means he had
1: all the talent to play shortstop and all the ability he had all the raw tools to do it but like many young shortstops couldn't do it all the time lots of mistakes Could he do that? And he immediately, in one season, with the help of coaching, ironed that totally out. The most consistent shortstop, I think, in baseball.
0: And the next year he got a gold glove. So he set his mind to fixing that. He worked with Perry Hill, and he fixed that. Okay, we'll go to work on some other things right now. I've got some trouble against lefties. Finish the season, most left-on-left hits in baseball. Okay, so he went to work on that. <laughs> he's got a cold glove. He's at the top of the list for this. I'm like, what is he? Have are we is there more to be tapped into there? Or or is this it? Another thing, well he kind of wore down as the season went on the last two years, and every year he's gotta get a little bit stronger. Gotta get a little bit stronger. How do you talk to him in the last week after a game and his uniform might be covered in dirt? He's not sweating. He's not having any problem talking, breathing heavy, nothing. He, he could, uh, it could have been April 1st.
1: And it looks that way. You watch him on the field at any point in time, at any game in the last two weeks. You saw it on the field. You saw that he, he nothing was physically failing him in any capacity. No. I didn't worry about him one bit physically during and that's the that's
0: remarkable Amazing. after a six-month baseball season. So, anything you want from him? you know, Do you mind attacking this this year? I'm very curious to see what happens. Great point. Great point. And teammates, who was it? Uh, Ty France said there's more in that bat. He's not quite there. And Ty France knows a thing or two about hitting.
1: Absolutely. And that's another guy who made a an interesting move forward. I think he really, to me.
0: No, he didn't. He, I, th- I think to me. <laughs> He's he been is, the same the entire he time. He played the whole. So this is 162, though. <laughs> This is 162. Okay. Yes, he did, he did finish 160, but this as far as not, the hitter that he is, he has been 100% this not a, consistent. This is not a
1: two-month flash-in-the-pan thing like we see a lot of guys who come up to the league, and somewhat inexplicably for some of them have insane success for two consecutive months. You're like, wow, this guy is that, but then it goes away. That's not Ty France. 162 played the same way all the way through. What's left for Ty? We're, t- we're tapping into some of the stuff we're going to talk about next week, but Ty France, talk about his season and, and what's next for him. Leave
0: him alone. <laughs> <laughs> Ty France, um, I've chronicled this so much, but his numbers before he came to the Mariners were exactly what they were after they came to the Mariners last year. San Diego numbers, Mariners, they, could, they are so close. This year, his numbers pre-injury, and his numbers post-injury, almost exactly the same. You take out, he played, I think it was, tried to play for 12 days with an injury. I think he had oh seven one 7 one in that time. Take that out, and before and after are almost identical. Ty France at the plate is Ty France at the plate. Don't mess with it.
1: <laughs> we'll leave it at that. I think there's more, there's more in that conversation, but you're absolutely right. The numbers bear it out. He is who he is, and the fact that he can do it for 162, it, it provides me some more confidence that He's a he's a serious contributor, and this is this is a center. He's a core piece now, and to me, that was something that I wasn't sure about until I could see. What him. I wasn't sure what? about Ty France until I could see him at one sixty two, and oh, specifically see him play a, a position on the field. <laughs> I have not been sold that he could play a position on the field until this year.
0: Well, he didn't tell us he could. Just had him at the <laughs> wrong position. That was ridiculous. Talk to him
1: about first base. What was that all about? How. How do we come to from the guy doesn't play first base Too he's potentially one of the three best first basemen in baseball?
0: Yeah, in baseball. Not the American League, in baseball. baseball. He could win the field, and I think the numbers will get him. But, I mean, he is gold glove worthy right now. Definitely should be one of the top three when, when the voting comes out. Uh, he, he 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 can play, and he did play. That is his most comfortable position. I think he gets a little annoyed when people say, oh, this came out of nowhere, or how much, you know, coaching helped. And coaching did help a little bit. But that's where, you know, Ty is, and this is one of the ones where you just have to get to know him. I mean, he is just an easygoing guy. You know, he, he's not flashy in the least bit. And he, he is just, unless you ask, can you play first base, you're probably not going to know that. And all the focus was on the bat. We've got to find a place for him to play in the field. He's just a good baseball player. And what he did at first base, pretty remarkable And how they found out. You know, you lose Evan White. You got Jake Bowers over there for a while. I think picking up Toro helped, and he's going to be at second. You're going to be at first. And, oh, yeah, you can play first base and then some. Now, it also helps that he had Gold Glove third baseman and J.P. Crawford at shortstop making some pretty darn good throws. Yes. That absolutely helps. Those
1: guys do have great arms. They're accurate. It's it's it, We will take it for granted once Kyle Seeger's gone and if we ever have to move on for J.P. Crawford in 10 years. We will take for granted how accurate their arms are. If you remember times before those guys were here. Brad Miller. The kinds of throws that you <laughs> saw from over there—how like, in the world, what what are you doing? Right. That there is—that's an amazingly underrated aspect of both of their games: the ability to throw and be accurate. Oh, amazing. Kyle
0: with the bounce, and the bounce was necessitated. That elbow was a real problem, mm. particularly in the second half. But that perfect—the bounce was always perfect, which is just amazing. And Crawford just rarely missed, and and that definitely helps. But. Uh, Yeah, it's, Ty France owns that position right now. Somebody's going to have to take it from him. And I don't see that happening.
1: Awesome. This has been great stuff, Shannon. We're going to do a couple more of these. I'm excited uh, next time we get through to talk a little bit more about what's going on with the state of the organization. um, What what happened with the players, where they started and where they are now? What's on the table for them as we go into the future and how much more we can get out of some of those guys that are on the 26-man roster and also going into some of the prospects in the farm system. Uh, we, in the past, there's been a lot of, yeah, you know, who knows when the big guys are going to come up. Someday it'll happen. Kelnick will come up someday. Logan Gilbert will come up someday. We're at the point now where we can point at some specific guys and say these three, four, five guys will be major contributors next year who are in the farm system. I'm curious to get more out of you with that. We'll
0: get into all of that. I also want to point out, because this has been fun and a lot of glowing and so much praise is deserved for this group and what they did. There are concerns, too. We will get into that as well.
1: Yes, absolutely. So thank you, Shannon, for doing this. Excited to talk more as the weeks go on.